Meet Yelp for Restaurants. Not the software company, but the people who love restaurants so much they formed a team dedicated to our industry. Before Catherine joined the customer success team, she managed the modern in New York. Yeah, that modern. Before Julia joined the team, she worked at Oshaval in Chicago for half a decade. Yelp is for restaurants because our people are restaurant people. Meet the new Yelp at restaurants.yelp.com forward slash podcast. Now here we go. The materials that we use that guests are going to be touching from the material of your seat to the material of the table to the finish on the bar. There's a bunch of different sensorial experiences that like a guest doesn't know that they're going to have, but we know that they're going to have them because we know what's going to happen as a guest comes into our space. And so that idea of considered hospitality is that we're literally thinking about all these things and how they're going to come together to create this cohesive guest experience. Welcome to Full Comp, a show offering insight into the hospitality industry, featuring restaurateurs, thought leaders, and innovators, served up on the house. What is cool? What are those indescribable qualities that make a restaurant popular? Is it just me or does it seem to be a moving target year to year? John Nidak seems to have the formula down, with each spot he opens being trendier than the next. But, and this is what's truly amazing, they have staying power. Today we sit down to discuss what makes a restaurant perennially popular so that we too can become the kings and queens of cool. My first real job in hospitality, I was in my sort of mid-late 20s, and I was trying to figure out what I was going to do with my life. I would have probably told you I was an actor, but I was really kind of more just floating. And I ended up going to work for Andre Bellage at a restaurant called Sunset Beach. It's a hotel restaurant property that he has in Shelter Island. And I went there, and I was a door host and a busboy, and then kind of went through sort of a front of house training over for the next summer or two. But really right from the beginning, I was a host, right? I wasn't the maitre d' or whatever. I was just the guy who walked you from the maitre d' stand to your table. And it was like my first weekend and it was Memorial Day, Saturday and Sunday. And we did like a thousand covers and just the energy of it was very intoxicating. There was an element to it that felt not so dissimilar from acting in the fact that like five o'clock hit or you got to work. And once you walked onto the floor, it was like, showtime and you know you kind of put on that fourth wall and then i think there was something that i talk about a lot where i realized early on that you had the ability to positively or negatively but you had the ability to affect a customer's experience in the moment and for someone who's like into instant gratification or like not waiting or impatience like in the moment just between the time when they're walking from the maitre d stand to their table like you're affecting their experience and you can actually make a difference. And sometimes all you want to do is just keep things going along the path they are. But if you're engaged and you're asking someone how they're doing or just being gracious when they're upset or whatever it is, there was this power that existed that I think I found really appealing. So I was kind of hooked right from the beginning. And then when I was bussing tables, that was kind of the other side of it where I realized that I really just enjoyed the process of taking care of people. And it didn't matter if the people were like nice to me or rude or if I knew them and they were friends or if they were complete strangers. I enjoyed something about the process and I kind of realized that like this feels right and I can probably do this. 
And then I worked in every front of house job. I was a food runner. I was a waiter. I was a bar back. A bartender I was the least of. I just never, I don't know. I always had like a heavy hand and it just like wasn't going to be my thing. And then I was a floor manager at Sunset Beach. And then when we opened the Standard Hotel, I went back to New York after the summer. And first I worked in the front office of the hotel as an assistant front office manager on the opening of the hotel before the food and beverage opened. And then I was a lobby manager for six months, which was actually one of the, I think I learned the most. There was the hugest leap in the shortest amount of time in that position because you're basically running a 30 seat bar and it's just you and a couple of servers and a busboy. And so in a way you own that space and you realize that your job as a manager a lot of times in that situation, or even as an owner, is to move tables around, to bust a table, to clear a table. There was something that I realized, even as you come up into a manager position, the best way you can support your team is by doing the most menial tasks, because it's foundational. Bussing tables is foundational. Like, if you can't bust a table, you can't turn a table, you can't turn a table, you can't sell a table. So, like, just by moving chairs, bussing tables, dealing with guests, I think that was a big experience for me. And then I was an opening manager in the Standard Grill. And then when we opened the Boom Boom Room, that was a big moment for me because I became the maitre d' of that and the closing manager, which other than the fact that I was working on like a nine to five on the flip side schedule, it was a big opening. It was sort of high profile. And a few months into that, there came an opportunity to rise up through the ranks very quickly just because of some circumstances. And I had known a lot of people and so I was able to become the director of the Boom Boom Room when I was 29 years old. And then we opened LeBan also through the standard. And then from there, between those two jobs over the next like couple of years is where I built the relationships that allowed me to then go in to do the Acme project, which I'd been talking to my partners there for some time about some other stuff. They wanted me to be a GM for something else, but I wasn't going to leave the standard for a GM role. And then there was an opportunity where they needed some capital. And I had investors who were People I'd met through working who were like, hey, when you go do your own thing, let me know. I'd love to invest small amounts for money from them, large amounts for money for someone who is trying to put together like 800 grand to open his first sure. bar restaurant. And there was an opportunity to partner with the guys from Acme. The numbers that they needed was actually exactly what I had already like sort of lined up to raise minus a little bit here and there. And so I was able to complete the raise for them, become full partners in Acme. and it was so difficult for me when I was trying to go from being a bar manager or director to being a restaurateur because every landlord you talk to is like, well, have you done anything before? And you're like, right. no. Right. And they're like, well, we need you to do something before. And you're like, well, I need someone to take a chance on me. And it was hard. I lost a deal that now is Pasquale Jones. Before that, it was a place called Toby's Public, which was a pizza places who beat me out because they had a couple of pizza restaurants in Brooklyn already. And I was unproven with the landlord. But from trying to make the change from managing for someone else to being a restaurateur, it's kind of a catch-22. But then two weeks after we opened Acme, I'm a restaurateur. Same knowledge base, same exact person, but all of a sudden now you're a restaurateur. Let's talk about that. Because for me, at least, that was a massive leap. I ran nightclubs in Hollywood. I had been in a managerial position. I had been an entrepreneur since my early 20s. And when I finally opened... My first place, my first thought after running so many places and so many different tiers of dining was, holy shit, this is different. This is way different. I never laid awake at night, like wringing my hands about any of the places that I managed and right. I cared about them. And I was putting in 60, 80, 100 hours a week. But right. 
there was this stress, there was this strain, this panic and this anxiety day to day that was directly associated with owning my own spot. And it did well. And it was still somewhat nightmarish. And so I understand the hesitancy of landlords. And I agree with you 100%. Someone's got to take a gamble on in order for you to make it to the next level of success. I spent, and I just want to bring this up because I'm curious to know what the leap was like for you. As an owner, I spent my first couple of years only focused on the menial tasks. And I agree with you that they're super important and they're foundational. But as a restaurateur, if you're doing a busser's work, you're going to be a busser forever, right? How did you pull yourself out of the day-to-day grind so that you could work on your business and not in it? First to address what you said, because I think it's important. I think it's important for anybody to know before they do go take a leap and do it on their own is what you mentioned about the difference between having a job that's stressful, but that you don't take home with you in the same way as when you own that restaurant. And I think that that's just something that's very real, because I think that this industry, and I'm sure there are other industries where this happens, but this one for me personally is one where striking the balance between personal and professional has been almost impossible at times in my career. And certainly in the beginning of my career, it was like, you're just never not on. And the level of responsibility that you feel to that business, it becomes all encompassing. And I think when you're opening your first place, for a lot of people, that's the only way to do it. And I don't know if I would really advise someone not to, if you came up through operations, if you don't understand operations, I would advise you to pick a different industry. Not to say that people aren't successful who don't come from operational backgrounds or at least have worked in it, but I do think that it's incredibly important that anybody who's getting into this business knows how to do all the jobs that they're asking someone else to do. And I think that that's something that that was foundational for me. My advice to anybody opening their first place would be be ready to be there all the time. And I think that once you're trying to open multiple places, I think that's a different conversation. For me, it was hiring somebody in operations and trusting them to take a lot of things off my plate so I could manage more on the bigger picture, kind of like you were talking about. But I think in the beginning of any venue, and even for me in the beginning you know, of openings, it's like, you got to be there all the time. I think it's really valuable to be in the thick of it with your employees going through an opening and with your general manager side by side. I think that if you can afford to have a general manager on your first place, you absolutely should. Having a great general manager is the key to it. But I'm aware also that a lot of people open places and they can't afford a general manager. The older sort of mom and pop model, or it's a couple and someone's in the back of house and someone's in the front of house. And I mean, the one that comes to mind that's kind of been the most successful that I know recently are like the Jacks White Frida team. They opened it. They did all the jobs themselves. So I think one of the big struggles is that, I mean, at least for me, I can only talk about my own career and speculate about everybody else's. But for me, I saw the value in delegation. I just spent most of my career delegating to the wrong people. I hired people that I could bring up through the ranks instead of just hiring people that were better than me. And for me personally, it had a lot to do with being cheap, right? I can pay this guy $52,000 a year. I can pay this guy $65,000 a year. And it's better than bringing in the $85,000 a year manager that's probably much better than me at the role and could probably teach me a few things. That was a huge hurdle for me. What was that delegation process like for you? That was something that I think that we did right out of the gates. And on my first projects, like in all honesty, I had partners who had a lot of experience. 
they had run restaurants for a long time. And so even though we were equal partners, I was sort of fortunate to be able to come in on in a role where I was deferring kind of to the experience of them. And I was able to come in and just add value where I could, which was there was a considerable amount of value for me to add. And there was a moment where I really realized how much I had learned from all the time working at places running them for someone else. And so I was able to add a lot of value in running operations in service. And then specifically when the downstairs of Acme opened, being the owner and running the nightclub. But we always, I don't know if I would say we were properly capitalized on our first project, but we were decently capitalized. And so we always had a model that had a strong general manager and had bar managers and had junior managers. But to what you said, I completely agree that it is the right thing to hire the right person for the extra money. And especially now, now it's tough because the numbers are also different. People are making a lot more. And I still believe that like it's always better to pay someone more who's going to be the right person for the job. And I would advise anybody to that. I've always been someone who I think wanted to invest in the proper people rather than trying to take as much money off the table in the short term. The hurdle for me was, and it took me a long time to realize this, but great people don't cost you money. Great people make you money. Definitely. And so if it's an expense, it's only an expense in the short term. And then the right person in the right position will make you an absolute fortune. Yeah, definitely. Just like it to, to break it down for people in like simple terms. If you have a business that's doing $3 million and I'll do it in restaurant terms for someone and a million dollars of that comes out of liquor, every point of your liquor cost is $10,000. So someone who's not doing the right job and your liquor cost is off by four points and you're at 20% instead of 16%, well, you just lost $40,000. And then the labor component and managing that is there's all sorts of different ways for that to get messed up. But yeah, I agree with you. Look at what each point of your business is worth and then think about if I pay this person extra, the extra 30 grand and they make me an extra six points, that's a win for everybody. And I think the other thing is, is even if you have the right person and you're paying them more and they're paying for themselves and they're breaking even, to your point, what that'll do for your own experience of being an owner and running a business and having someone else you can trust is almost invaluable. And certainly on your ability to go and ever look to do your second project or third or something like that, having things at order in that first restaurant is always worth paying for, I think. Did you have a muse going into it? Do you have a muse now? You know, I'm seated in Los Angeles and there were so many restaurants when I was coming up, so many bars, so many nightclubs that I looked at and I was like, oh, I want to do that. There were so many operators and owners that I was like, I want to be like that guy. I want to internalize those qualities. Has there been anyone like that for you over the years or today? Yeah, I think I looked up to because I always worked in hotels and hotels were kind of always something that that was appealing to me. So there were hotel owners whose careers I I looked to a lot, like Sean McPherson, who is someone who came up as in L.A., a restaurant and bar owner. And he actually ran nightclubs in the 90s and then came to New York. And his first project was the park, I believe. And then they did the Maritime Hotel. So his career was someone who I looked at because he was someone who was great with design, but also a made operator. And then in terms of overall vibe and feeling, Keith McNally's always been the bar for me in, in terms of design aesthetic and the way that all of the pieces work together from operations to design to concept to create this cohesive experience. I had a dinner at Minetta Tavern when it first opened. Still, I think I was the lobby manager at the Standard. And that was one of the first times that I ever had 
an experience where I felt how a restaurant tour could create sort of an experience that transcended just eating and drinking. Like the lighting was right. The design was right. The service was right. The food was good. I ordered wine that I thought would go with the duck that I ordered. And at the end of the meal, they asked me if I wanted an Armagnac. And I like, I don't drink Armagnac. Like I was like in my 20s, who drinks Armagnac? I didn't even drink cognac. <laughs> and the answer was like, yes, absolutely. Let's keep it going because you're just like in the moment, you know, and that's when you create that emotional connection for your customer to the experience like that, I think is where the true power lies and what a restaurateur can do. And, and I think Keith's historically been one of the best at that. Prior to the pandemic, I could barely use my iPhone. I'm a restaurateur, not a tech guru. But over the last two years, we've seen that tech can play a vital role in helping us make more money and save money. And that tech can show up at some pretty unlikely places, like your kitchen sink. Dawn Professional is a detergent and degreaser that can help reduce your labor expense and your overhead on cleaning supplies through leveraging the latest technological innovation in cleaning products. Dawn Professional Multi-Service Heavy Duty Degreaser is specifically formulated to cut grease two times faster versus the leading food service degreasers. While Dawn Professional Manual Pot and Pan Dish Detergent cleans 58% more pots and pans per sink, reducing sink changeover versus the leading competitor's professional dish soap. Save time and money by upgrading to Dawn Professional Manual Pot and Pan Dish Detergent and Dawn Professional Multi-Service Heavy-Duty Degreaser from PNG Professional. How do you get attention and how do you keep it? New York is a competitive market just like Los Angeles. And you might get a little press in the early days for opening a new place, but there are new places opening every day. How do you stay relevant over time and how do you work to keep people's attention? I think the biggest thing is consistency over the long run. I think consistency is the hardest thing in our business. I often compare a restaurant to like a vintage motorcycle. As you drive it, the natural inertia of it is to fall apart. If you drive a vintage car or vintage motorcycle and you don't get it serviced, it's going to end up being a pile of junk on the side of the road. Doesn't matter how it was made. And so like you're constantly fighting against that inertia for screws to get looser and things to kind of get old and you kind of keep having to tinker with it. And that's the hardest part of our business is that it's never done. Like you constantly have to keep pushing to keep things at a level to not have your staff get complacent to continue to deliver to your customer. So I think that consistency is a big one. And in terms of keeping a concept relevant, I think we've been fortunate to be able to create concepts that weren't chasing trends and there were something that would continue to appeal. I think that when I've created places, I've been able to create them for where I felt like there was a need in the market or something where I was looking for that didn't exist. And I've been fortunate enough that that seems to have been in line with what our customer base also is looking for. And as I've evolved or created things that spoke to kind of where I was in my journey or my career, that my client base has kind of evolved with me, I think. Let's talk about that, because I think that that's a really valuable point. I've talked to entrepreneurs all the time, and I'll be like, who's your avatar? Who's your target customer? And in those moments where they describe someone that is not the person that I am looking at, I always think it's going to be a hard fucking road because it's how do you get in the mind of someone else? 
I have been successful professionally in every tier of dining because of one thing and one thing alone. I am incredibly ordinary and I cater to myself. I like what everyone likes. I have average taste. I have average proclivities. And so if I just appeal to me, I am appealing to the masses. And no bullshit, it's a superpower. And so you intimately know your customer because you're serving yourself. And it's got to be an easier road, right? For me, it has been. And it doesn't mean that it's always like there have been mistakes. Tijuana Picnic was my second restaurant. And what I would warn anybody who had a ton of success in their first restaurant that I fell prey to is that it's easy to feel like you're bulletproof. It's hard to envision what the difficulties were that you didn't have in the first project. This isn't answering your question, but I think it's a valuable thing. One thing we made a big mistake on Tijuana Picnic is I underestimated the neighborhood that we were going into and the concept that we were doing and the neighborhood where we were putting it, like the location itself in the neighborhood was off by a little bit and I didn't do enough homework to see the foot traffic and to really get a sense. Then there happened to be a bunch of construction on Houston for like the first three years that we were open and it literally would take you, I mean, because I would have to do this journey from Acme to Tijuana Picnic could take you like 25 minutes, like in a car, which was not lucky for us. But the location was more difficult than I thought by a long shot. And I think that we misjudged all the different aspects of our clientele that we would need. Like the weekend demographic of our clientele was always there and really strong, but we misjudged what the midweek and early week business would be. And we made some mistakes judging how many square feet it was versus what we had at Acme. The two floor concept worked so well for us at Acme and at Tijuana Picnic, it didn't work as well. One, because I found it difficult to create another basement concept that could be as successful as Acme was without me living there all the time, which at that point in my career, I like, couldn't do. And the other thing was that if you're looking at a concept and you need both floors to give you the covers that you need in order to make your numbers work, it's really important to remember that over two floors, you may not double your overhead in terms of labor, but it's not apples to apples. If we had had all of Tijuana Picnic over one floor, we would have needed three bartenders on our busiest night and call it four servers. And because it was over two floors, we ended up having to have five bartenders and six or six and a half servers and an extra manager. And two floor concepts are dangerous if you're treating them as kind of the covers that you would get over one floor. If you have two separate concepts and they're both independently successful, I think it can work. The Happiest Hour right now operates over two floors and it actually works really well as one concept because Slowly Shirley is no longer there and it serves as overflow. And if the second floor is a flex space that you're using for in times where you can just open it up when the demand is there and otherwise your business works just on one floor. So it's kind of just operating the same way a PDR would where it's just revenue without a lot of added overhead or you just have a couple of bartenders, then it's a great concept. But yeah, Tijuana Picnic always struggled because of the location and because the footprint was too small for it to work over one floor and over two floors, it ended up costing us a lot more to run. It leads me to, I think, a really relevant question, which is, are you less optimistic today than you were when you started? Something that I think is really interesting about us as restaurateurs is Typically, we're taking over a failed space, right? Like a restaurant was in here. This restaurant didn't do well. So there's an exceptional amount of optimism. We look into the abyss and we say, you know what? It's not that deep. I bet I can swim it. But that optimism, especially in the early days as an entrepreneur, it led me at least to overlooking some really obvious issues. 
I went from running nightclubs to owning and operating a dive bar in Hollywood. And that totally makes sense. And then my next venture was a 6,000 square foot, two story fine dining restaurant because how fucking hard could that be? Right. Totally. And look, the fine dining restaurant ended up being Michelin rated. It was the greatest achievement of my life, but it was also like this soul sucking six year endeavor that almost killed me and bankrupting all of the associated businesses yeah. with it. How has your perspective changed when you look at new ventures? Are you more pragmatic, less optimistic? What is it like now? Yeah. So Tijuana Picnic was a humbling experience for sure. And Luckily, before I realized how many mistakes I had made at Tijuana Picnic, I had already taken the happiest hour. The happiest hour actually opened before Tijuana Picnic did. And just to touch on another thing, because this is a big part of how I think of projects today, Tijuana Picnic ended up being taking a space and that was almost just like white boxed, but not even with plumbing terminations where we wanted them to be. Like we took a comedy club and we made it into a restaurant and there had been no kitchen and there was no plumbing on certain floors. And I don't really have any interest or sort of capacity to take on projects like that anymore. Like getting involved in construction projects that involve like huge plumbing, electrical, putting in hoods and HVACs and dealing with fire departments and all that stuff that I generally stay away from that unless I was in something where somebody was building out a restaurant for me or it was part of a hotel project where the developer is taking care of that. And what I would say to someone, and a huge lesson that I've learned over time is that I have well over, when they talk about 10,000 hours makes you an expert or something, I've got 10,000 hours in running restaurants in spades. I've got way less at that of building restaurants. And that's a huge thing that I think that I didn't realize when I came into Acme, we were kind of halfway through the project. It was a mess, but we were halfway through and I didn't really realize, but the learning curve of what it takes to build to build restaurants, certainly to build them out of white box spaces, to build them from scratch, what it takes to deal with expediters and general contractors or project managers. It's a lot. And there's no experience. Like nobody learns that. If you're a front of house person, you're never learning that part of the business. And then all of a sudden, it's actually the most important part of your business because it can sink your business before you even open. And I think understanding how that process and how little one knows in that process is a huge important self-awareness moment. And when I look at spaces now, I look for things, especially in this market, but in general, I look for a second generation restaurant. I want something that's already like where the plumbing's where it's going to be, where the kitchen's already there, where I'm coming in and I'm really doing more of a, an FF&E renovation, which I'm happy to do an involved FF&E renovation, but I would rather not be having to deal with plumbing, gas, electric, waiting for roughing inspections, that's the stuff that I stay away from right now. Like I said, Tijuana Picnic made me gun shy, but I had already done the happiest hour, which ended up being really successful. I was a little worried for a while of taking the right thing and making sure it was the right deal and that I was going to be able to cover because running Tijuana Picnic and watching yourself run a business that's like breaking even or you're making a little money one year, or you're not like you're not taking your management fees like that's a tough spot to be and not one that I would ever hope upon anybody. And, you know, people, I don't know what the numbers are. You hear people talk about nine out of 10 restaurants fail. I don't know if that's true or not, but what I do know is that there's a large failure rate in restaurants. But then what people don't realize is that of all the restaurants that are staying open, all a restaurant needs to be doing is make $100 a year or $1 a year in order to stay open. So you've got a bunch of restaurants that may stay open for 
five, six, seven years. But a lot of those restaurants like aren't making a profit. They're not paying back investors, which I don't criticize people for that. It's a really difficult business to do that. And so I think at this point in my career, I have a good understanding of what the type of projects that are the least risky for us and what our core competency are. And when I've looked at new projects, that's something that I've been kind of very aware of. What are we very good at? How do those projects work? And thinking about how much is it going to cost me to build something and how much am I going to be able to make? And I'm not looking to prove to people that I can go and do a 150 seat monster restaurant. It's more like for our business, when we're doing things that we're funding ourselves, it's like, what are going to be small wins that we can make? Like where we're actually getting a good return on our investment. I'm very optimistic in terms of our business with the right opportunities right now. You've got over half a dozen concepts and there's this central theme that runs through all of them. And it's this idea of considered hospitality. Can you define what that means and what it looks like in action? Yeah. So considered hospitality for me is a notion that started out with the guest experience. I was someone who was brought up and working for Andre and looking at places with Keith and where the guest experience was something that was very much at the forefront and not just in the service and the operations of it, more so the way that the guest experience is considered before the guest ever gets to the space. Considered hospitality is the idea that we as a group or myself as the owner and operator have thought about the needs in the guest and how to optimize a guest's experience from the moment that they enter the restaurant with the overall design, lighting, music levels, how the flow of service comes, how a guest is taken into a space that is foreign to them the first time they walk into it and made to feel comfortable and made to feel at home. That we've thought about the way that chair heights work versus table heights, that we don't always use standard 18-inch seat heights and 30-inch table heights, like certain concepts, like we make it a little bit lower. And like, what does that do to the guest experience? You know, like, how do you light a space? That's a huge one for me. And one that I learned from Andre, and Andre always cited Keith McNally and my partners from Indochine. Indochine was a Brian McNally restaurant. I credit the McNallys for basically creating what I think is the most appealing, flattering, best lighting for restaurants. And for me, that's lighting everything with sconce lighting, with lighting that comes from the side and indirect lighting sources. And it always surprises me that so many places don't do that. But the lighting is a huge part. The music levels in a restaurant to the given concept is a huge part. The materials that we use that guests are going to be touching from the material of your seat to the material of the table to the finish on the bar. There's a bunch of different sensorial experiences that like a guest doesn't know that they're going to have, but we know that they're going to have them because we know what's going to happen as a guest comes into our space. And so that idea of considered hospitality is that we're literally thinking about all these things and how they're going to come together to create this cohesive guest experience, including what we do with the brand and the concept and just all the conceptual stuff before is sort of at the beginning foundation of considered hospitality. And then once they enter the space, how does the operations fit in with that? And I don't think that we're reinventing the wheel with our operation style. Everybody wants to be anticipatory. Everybody wants to be empathetic. And we want our staff to be super professional, really well-versed on menu knowledge and understanding and being able to speak to things and really well-versed on all the blocking and tackling of service. And we want all those things so that then their personalities can come through. And I think if you ask most restaurateurs, I would think that a lot of them want the same things. And so we just try and train to our version of that. And at the end of the day, making sure that no matter how much buzz or how much attention we get in the beginning of it, that our staff are always 
gracious and humble and that we're really making our guests feel that we feel lucky that we get to be busy. And then the second and third part of considered hospitality, and this wasn't how I was brought up in the industry. It was sort of a different industry when I came up in it. But I think that the next part is that how that same consideration that we're showing our guests, like how do we then show that to our employees? How do we make them feel like we're thinking about their needs and thinking about their experience? And that's something that I think is a work in progress and something that's a direction that our industry has to continue to take and one that we're working towards at our corporate level and also at like the line level of how you make people feel like they're being taken care of the same way that we're asking them to take care of our guests. And then the third arm of that would be that we're running businesses that are fiscally responsible and that we're considering how our um, businesses that we have investors, how we're treating them, how we're making sure that our reporting is transparent. And also when we're doing projects on our own, that we're considering the financial viability of projects so that we can create these spaces that are iconic, but that are also fiscally responsible to run. This is an industry podcast. And at the end of every episode, I'd like to give the guests an opportunity to speak directly to the audience. Do you have any advice or words of encouragement you'd like to offer? I would say make sure that you really love taking care of people if you're in this industry. I think that like, if foundationally, the desire to provide great, magical, special experiences for people is at the core of why you do what you do, then I think that's a really good foundation. If you're in this business to make money, you know, there are a lot of businesses that are probably easier than this one. And one thing that Andre said to me when I was first coming to work for him is that once your eye shifts and you start seeing things from sort of the other side of things, when you walk into a dining room and you start seeing everything that's wrong with it, once that shifts, it never comes back. And so just be prepared that if this is really something that you want to do, it's permanent in a way. And it's amazing. You know, it can be a great business and it can be something that's incredibly rewarding at times, but it's one of the hardest businesses out there. And just make sure you're in it for the right reasons. That's John Nidek. For more on Golden Age Hospitality, visit goldenagehospitality.com. If you want to tell us your story, hear previous episodes, or check out our other content, go to restaurants.yelp.com forward slash full comp. Thank you so much for listening to the show. You can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. While you're there, please leave us a review. A special thanks to Yelp for helping us spread the word to the whole hospitality community. I'm Josh Kopel. You've been listening to Full Comp.